You are listening to a message from Sound Words. To find information about our ministry, please visit our website at soundwords.org. You can also download our free app from iTunes or Google Play to access more great sermons. We're going to Ephesians chapter 5 in your Bibles. Ephesians and the fifth chapter. We're in the section of Ephesians that deals with the application of the doctrine that he presented in the first three chapters. Ephesians, as we have it now in our Bibles, is comprised of six chapters. And the first three chapters really lay the doctrinal foundation for what he wants to exhort us to put into practice in chapters 4, 5, and 6. He's talked about our walk. Be careful how we walk. In chapter 5, verse 15, therefore be careful how you walk. Then in verse 18, the contrast, do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. It's essential that we not only know the Word, but we do the Word. And you can't separate them. You really don't know the word if your goal is not to put it into practice. If you're trying to put into practice what you really don't know, you just have a general idea of. Again, the two go together, knowing the word and doing the word. Leave a marker in Ephesians chapter 5. Come back to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew in the 7th chapter. We're in what's known as the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. And Jesus addresses this whole issue of obedience to the word. I will pick up with, well, the emphasis in verse 15 of chapter 7 of Matthew reminds the danger of false prophets, those who profess to be representing God but are not. Verse 16 of chapter 7 of Matthew said, You will know them by their fruit. Then in verse 20, So then you will know them by their fruits. That emphasis, you'll know them by how they conform to the word of God. What they do with the doctrine that they've been taught. Do they really live it out? So verse 21 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, that's the one who will enter. So you see the contrast. It's not just knowing, but it's doing. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? In your name cast out demons. In your name do many miracles. And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So they can prophesy in his name. They can cast out demons in his name. They can perform many miracles in his name. Doing all this supposedly out of some kind of relationship and empowering of them with the person of Christ, and yet he, they're totally foreign to him. He says, I never knew you. Depart from me, 
you who practice lawlessness. You see, the practice and the knowledge. The practice and the knowledge. And be very careful. Because sometimes the practice is let go of before the knowledge. So we have people going to Protestant and Catholic churches who claim to know something about the Bible. But really the implementing of it in their lives is lacking. And the reality of it is they have no relationship with the Lord of the Scripture. So come back to Ephesians chapter 5. It's what he's talking about in chapters 4, 5, and 6. He's talking about the walk of the believer. As we had in chapter 5, verse 15. He's talking about being filled with the Spirit. And they are two sides of the same coin. They're saying they're basically the same thing. If you are walking as you should, you will be under the control. You will be filled with the Holy Spirit. Let me just give you, again, the four characteristics of everyone who is a believer. We were going to do these on a slide, but we didn't do that. But let me just give it to you. The first, uh, we do it with the uh, acronym RIBS, R-I-B-S. R stands for regeneration. You are regenerated by the Holy Spirit, made new as a person in Christ. Come over to Titus chapter 3, verse 5. Titus chapter 3 and verse 5 says, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration. So that's where we get that expression, regeneration, in the acronym RIBS. Regeneration, by the washing of regeneration and the making new by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly, through Christ our Savior. So we are regenerated the moment we believe. That's the issue. It's not, well, I live a life that is pretty good. I live a life that I don't think you'd find a lot wrong with. That doesn't get you there. And you must be born again. You must be made new by the Spirit of God by placing your faith in what Christ has done for you on the cross. So that's regeneration. Indwelling is the work of the Holy Spirit in indwelling, dwelling within, in the life of a person. This is crucial because you can't be filled or controlled by the Spirit if He's not indwelling you. This becomes crucial. Come back to Romans chapter 8. Just give you a verse for each of these. So this is the I in the ribs. R-I-B-S, regeneration. The second is indwelling. Romans chapter 8 and verse 9. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. There is no such thing as a Christian who is not indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. If you don't have the Spirit, you don't belong to him. That's as clearly as it could be in Romans chapter 8, verse 9. The B in the ribs is for the baptism of the Spirit. That occurs to every believer. So regeneration, that's foundational. Indwelling, 
that's the result of being made new by the Spirit. He also takes up residence in your life. You are baptized by the Spirit. Come over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I've just selected a verse on each of these. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13 says it very simply, for by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. And that is universally the same for every believer. Whether you are a Jew or Greek, slave or free, we are made to partake of one spirit, to drink of one spirit. The body is not one member, but many, but there's one body. So it's the baptism of the spirit, and that's described for us in detail in Romans chapter 6. You don't need to turn there for now, but you can go back and read that at your leisure. So the baptism of the spirit is the work of the spirit that identified you with Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. So when I placed my faith in Christ alone, God viewed me as having died with Christ, was buried with Christ, was raised with Christ, a new person. So I was made new in Christ and indwelt with the Spirit of God and then also his sealing ministry. And you can come back to Ephesians. We'll pick it up in Ephesians. We'll take two verses on that since we're in the book we're in. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. In him you also, after listening to the truth, the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. That's repeated emphasis. That gospel of your salvation is the good news. You'd be saved by placing your faith in Christ and him alone. Having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as the pledge of our inheritance, as a down payment, with a view to the redemption of God's possession. So we have the Holy Spirit And that's God's guarantee that there's coming a day in the future when he will transform these bodies and bring them into conformity with the body of his resurrected glory. And then we will be perfect in every way. But we have the Holy Spirit as a seal in chapter 4 of Ephesians. Verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed. For the day of redemption, that's God's guarantee to us that what he has begun, he will complete. So I can be sure death won't affect that. I will someday be resurrected, joined with those who don't die, and together we will be glorified in his presence at the rapture of the church. So regeneration, indwelling, baptism, sealing. Those are four works of the Spirit that go, that happen immediately and simultaneously. When we are regenerated, we are indwelt. When we are indwelt, we are baptized. When we are baptized, we are sealed. Those four things happen at the moment you placed your faith in Jesus Christ. If you didn't place your faith in Christ, then everything else is just external form. And we're back to... For example, what we read in Matthew chapter 7, where you can prophesy in his name and cast out demons in his name and perform many miracles in his name, and he'll say, I never knew you. Well, how do you do those works? Well, the point is that I never knew you. That's what I have to deal with. Do I really know him, or am I just conforming because some of you were raised in this church? 
You have heard the truth. You pretty well conform your life. But that doesn't mean you've been born again, born from above. Now, we do all this because when we come to chapter 5 and verse 18, where it says, do not get drunk with wine for that's dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. That's a present tense. That's an ongoing reality for us. Those four things we did with ribs of the Holy Spirit's work happened the moment we were saved. We are not to grieve the Holy Spirit, the one who sealed us for the day of redemption, but that sealing is taking place with his taking up residence in our lives. But now the be filled with the Holy Spirit is an ongoing responsibility. It means to be controlled by the Spirit, to do what the Spirit directs, which is in accord with the Word of God. Now, there's a distinction between trying to conform myself to the Word of God and having the Spirit of God conform me from within. But I take it with the ministry of God's truth, the functioning of the gifts together, So, you know, we looked at verses following verse 18, which commanded us to be filled with the Spirit. We're not commanded to be indwelt by the Spirit as believers because we're already indwelt. But as believers, we are commanded to be filled with the Spirit under his control, doing what he would have us to do, bringing us more and more into conformity with his word. And there were four participles, five really, of I-N-G as we have in English. For our participles in verse 19, speaking, singing, making melody. The variations in there are not great, but you can go back and look at those. Giving thanks in verse 20. And then verse 21, and for some reason we have in our New American Standard Bibles not done it on ING word, but it literally as you have it in your margin, being subject Verse 21, being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. That's an evidence of the Spirit's work. The mutual interaction we have, that's why it's important we get together. That we be together, that we function together. We've had an issue of a disease or a virus. For a while the church is shut down, but it comes to a point you say we can't be what God tells we are to be. Hebrews chapter 10 says, we are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Oh, I get it on the internet. Well, that's fine, but this is not a school. This is a church. And a church, we need to be together, to function together. We minister not just, oh, well, I sing the songs at home. Well, that's nice. That's giving praise to God. But you are also to be doing it to one another. So... The mutuality is lost if we're not together. We can be together again. We're thankful for that. I realize there are some who have to stay at home because of illnesses and so on. But basically, we want to be careful. We don't want to just stay home because it's become convenient to be at home. And I can turn it on. I get there. But you are not part of the body. You are not functioning together. We're not doing it to one another And we are being subject, in verse 21, to one another in the fear of Christ. And that's a good translation there, the fear of Christ. doesn't mean just abject terror, but it's more than respect. It is. I don't want to do anything that displeases him. It is used down at the end 
of this section on the husband and wife relationship in verse 33, but they've translated it in the text differently. You'll note the wife must see the end of verse 33 of Ephesians 5, that she respects her husband. Now you have in the margin there, but that little number one fear, it's the same word as you had up in verse 21. Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ and the wife must see to it that she fears her husband. And it really is the opening and the closing of that section on the husband and the wife. And we're going to focus on the wife's role and responsibility. And then the next lesson, we'll study on the husband. And if the Lord comes this week, well, that just meant the wife should get it and not the husband. No, it means we'll all then have it understood properly. But... For right now, we're going to take it. And they're not dependent on one another. It's not wise to submit to your husbands if they're believing, loving, kind, everything a husband should be. Or husbands love your wives when they submit and be everything they should be. Each one is dealt with as their own and fully accountable and responsible. Even when you have an unbelieving husband, as we'll get to when we look in some of the passages, you still... Submit to him, respect him, and obey him in all things. So being subject to one another in the fear of Christ is a transition. It's connected to what goes before it because it all comes out of verse 18 of Ephesians 5, be filled with the Spirit. And those five participles modify the main verb that uh, we mentioned in the fifth one here, verse 21, is being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. I don't want to do anything that displeases him. I don't want to function in any way that would be contrary to what he wants me to do and to be. Then we'll end this section on the husband and the wife in the same emphasis. So he picks up in verse 22. Wives, and you'll note the word be subject to your own husbands, the word be subject, the verb's not repeated. It's just assumed from the previous verse, which is built on verse 18. The main verb, the imperative command is be filled with the spirit. And then the evidence of that and the manifestation of that is with the ing words that we have noted the fifth one being in verse 21 being subject to one another in the fear of Christ now being filled with the spirit and then verse 15 walking in the spirit are basically the same thing before we go on maybe we should come back to Romans chapter 8 Romans chapter 8 we'll look at verse 4 so the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk. No, no, there's our word walk. Walk, which we have in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15. Walk. Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And in verse 9 of Romans 8, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. If anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So this indwelling spirit is to control us how we live out our lives, how we walk. So he's talked about the walk of the believer, particularly in chapter four, it becomes the emphasis 
from chapter 4, verse 1, and it's repeated in chapter 5, it's repeated. But we're talking about being under the control of the Spirit of God. Come back to Ephesians chapter 4. We'll just note them quickly. Verse 1, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. So that's the first three chapters. Down in verse 17, walk no longer as the Gentiles walk. Ducking that word for the general unbelieving population. I don't get the input for how I should conduct my life from the world around me. This is so important for where we're going to be shortly. Chapter 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. We're his children. We ought to be patterning our life after the God who is our father. And walk in love just as Christ loved you. So there's the standard, that self-sacrifice, unselfish, self-giving love. Walk in love. And Christ is the example of that love. Down at the end of verse 8, walk as children of light. And then we had verse 15, be careful how you walk. And he told us how we ought not to walk. Then we don't put ourselves under the control of other things that would take over our lives, like drinking. Don't get drunk with wine. That's dissipation. That puts you under control of something that you're out of control with. But be filled with the Spirit. And that means to be controlled. And then we had the five participles ending with verse 21, which transition to the wives. So be subject to verse 21, being subject to one another in the fear of Christ, wives to your own husbands, as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is also the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands. Then we had that word, two words, participial there. In everything. So if it didn't go any further, it would be clear what the wife is to do and how she is to function. And verse 24 says she is to be subject to her husband in everything. And we'll see in a moment, that includes unbelieving husbands. Now, it doesn't include sinning. But be careful. And I've been here a long time. And I've had many conversations with husbands and wives. And I've had wives who just bad out. I'm not doing it. Period. I'm not doing it. Well, what can I say? Scripture says this, and you say you're not doing it, but you say you're a believer. I think you need to back up and decide well, whose side are you on? I want to walk through the Scripture here on a number of passages and then come back and pull this together in Ephesians chapter 5. What it says about the role of women, because we're talking about the wives. So women who are wives. Now, single women, they have some freedom that married women don't have because they don't have a husband they have to be subject to. They have to be subject to their fathers, but obviously you outgrow that and then there are guidelines, but the normal pattern. So let's go back to Genesis chapter 2. We're just going to take this from the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 2. Some of you use your iPads and phones. I used to be able to tell by the pages turning whether you're there. I don't hear them quite as well. Could have to do with my hearing, but uh, 
we won't get into that. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him, fitting for him. And then all the animals and so on were not of the same kind. There's nothing there that assumes we have our animals, we get attached to our dogs and our cats, and there is nothing in the animal world that fits what God intends for the husband and wife to bring to one another. So in all the animals God created, and they were perfect at that time, there was not a helper suitable for him, the end of verse 20. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned, literally built, into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman. Because she was taken out of man. Now there we're going to see when we get to the New Testament, there is an order established. Because the man was created first and the woman was created out of the man. That gives the man priority. It gives the man authority in the relationship. So we're back at the creation. The fall hasn't entered the picture. We'll see this in New Testament passages, but I just want to stress it. Now, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife. They shall become one flesh. So that's God's answer, that ultimately the man will find the fulfillment in the woman and the woman in the man. They shall become one flesh. That's expressed in the sexual relationship. Now, that's not going to include everyone, and Paul will talk about that, but that's generally the pattern. While you're here in chapter 3, sin enters the picture. When the woman usurps the place of the man and the man follows and you have sin and then there's a blame that goes. Verse 12, the man said, the woman you gave me, here with me, she gave me from the fruit and I, hey, I mean, what, what can I do? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me. He said, you'll be like God, verse 5, and you'll know good from evil. And there was an element of truth in that. She knew evil like she never knew it before because she became an evil being. And the Lord God, so he just takes it in order, said to the serpent, said to the woman, verse 16, to the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you'll bring forth children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And for Adam, because you listened to the voice of your wife, and on for the judgment on Adam. We're focusing on the wife right here now. Your desire will be for your husband. He shall rule over you. So the order is not changed, but there's conflict in the order now that wasn't there. The beautiful harmony and oneness has been broken. And now the man will still rule. But it will be unpleasant. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. All right. I've just taken, uh, written these uh, verses down. I want us to do in order. So go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I just took them as we have them in our Bible. 
So 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And you'll see some of this will go back to what we just read in Genesis. All of it's based on that. Chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians opens up, and I'll be imitators of me just as I am also of Christ. Verse 3, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man. The man is the head of the woman. God is the head of Christ. There is order established. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. Every woman who has her head uncovered disgraces her head. Why? Verse 7, for a man ought not to have his head covered since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. Man does not originate from woman, but woman from the man. The man was not created for the woman's sake, the woman for the man's sake. That all takes us back to Genesis 2. Sin has aggravated the problem, but it's not changed the relationship. That's crucial. So even in worshiping God, when you're doing the same thing, praying, prophesying, a woman would have to have her head covered because that is normally what God would use a man for and the leadership he is exercising in praying and prophesying. We don't pray and prophesy, so we don't have the same restrictions on head covering since they are particularly related to that because they would particularly, the Old Testament particularly, are Old Testament male prophets. The leading in prayer, we don't have the women do that with the men present. If we did, they should have their head covered. It's just what the scripture says. And the reason goes back to the creation, not the fall, but the creation. The man is the image and glory of God. The woman is the glory of the man because she was created out of the man. Something already had been made by God. And then he took part of what he had made and made the woman. That's the argument. He took the side part out of the man and then fashioned it into a woman. So we don't have two exact, distinct, separate beings in that sense because the woman was taken from the man. And it was created for the man's sake because, and if we had read all of uh, chapter 2, we would have read uh, there that it's not good for the man to be alone. Now Paul makes an exception we'll talk about but basically God intends marriage to take place a man was not created for the woman's sake the woman for the man's sake because God said it's not good for the man to be alone so I'll make a helper for the man so that's however in the Lord neither is the woman independent of the man and the man of the woman for as the woman originates from the man so also the man has his birth through the woman and so on so there is an equality, but there is a distinction. We get those who play with the scripture, and this is where I don't know where we're dealing with believer and unbeliever for sure on some of these, but they just decide I'm going to take this portion of scripture, but I'm not going to accept this portion of scripture. There is an equality there. There are only two human beings on the face of the earth, the male and the female. But there is order established from the creation that one of those human beings is over the other. And then we're going to have the fall and so on. And that includes the length of hair and so on. As he goes on in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, you have to deal with that. I'm not going to get into that. Whew. 
But if the woman's hair it looks like the man's, or the man's look like the woman, it needs to be fixed. We'll leave it there. Let's get on to uh, Colossians chapter 3. Yeah, you're laughing because you know. Just after Ephesians, we have Philippians, then we have Colossians. So go to Colossians chapter 3. This will be brief because what he says to the women in a, an expanded way, and what he says to the male and the female, the husband and the wife in Ephesians is longer than these other portions. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. This is what is fitting. I've had women sit in my office. I won't do it. What he says, period. Well, what are you here for? You've already made up your mind. You're not going to do what the Bible says you have to do. And you've got your reasons for it. We all have. Well, because of this, because of that. Wives, be subject to your husband as it's fitting in the Lord. That's what's fitting in the Lord. That you be subject to your husband. I didn't write it. Don't get upset with me. Wives, be subject to your husband as it's fitting in the Lord. Now come over to 1 Timothy chapter 2. What we're finding is a consistency in what we have in the scripture regarding the role that a woman is to have and to fulfill. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, we pick up with the women in verse 9. He's talking about the men, but we're focusing on the role the woman would have. It is not just the wife, but the women generally as the church functions, because this order extends out. There's only two people on the whole face of the earth. Adam... And then when God made the woman out of the side part of Adam, you have two people, but one was made out of the other. I want the women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly, discreetly, not with braided hair, gold pearls, costly garments, but rather means of good works as is profit for a woman making a claim to godliness. Oh, it doesn't mean a woman doesn't have clothes and all, but that's not to be the focal point of her life. That's where the world is. You turn on the news, you look at it on your computer, and it's always about what this woman's wearing or what she's done. But for the godly woman, she may have nice clothes. She may have clothes that are shabbier. It's not the point. The point is, verse 10, her good works, as is proper for a woman making claim to godliness. You claim to be a believer. You claim that I've trusted Christ, I belong to God, well then, you act accordingly. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. Verse 11. I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. We have denominations that have started because women have started them, but it doesn't make it right. Well, it wouldn't have prospered if God hadn't said who. Again, the word of God is either authoritative or not. And we want to be careful when we're dealing with people who take the word of God and just, you know, massage it so well. It says that, but it doesn't really mean that. I don't allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was created first, then Eve. See, now we're back to Genesis 2. That's before the fall. 
the order established of the male and female has to do with the order of creation and it's beyond just the husband and wife. It's the order in general that will be reflected out and it's reflected in the kings of Israel. And there is one lady, but you don't want to imitate her. So what? It's the order that is established. It was Adam who was created first, then Eve. Verse 14. And then now we have the deception that came in. In chapter 3 of Genesis. It was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. So when we got out of that order, and the woman didn't tell the serpent, I must talk to my husband and find out. No, she just went ahead and did it. Then her husband submitted to her idea. Now we have the mess. It was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. I didn't write this. Now, there are people who don't put a great deal of stock. They claim to be exposing and explaining Scripture, but they really are making Scripture fit the idea of the day. Women will be preserved, will be saved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith, love, and sanctity with self-restraint. Not just having children, guaranteed, but having children and continuing in faith, in love, and sanctity with self-restraint. Discretion as you have it in your margin. That's the woman's role. That's the woman's realm. Now, there will be exceptions to that, as there will be to men that will not be married. But for the married woman, that's her general. And for the women generally, this is the pattern. And it carries over to the church because we don't have women doing teaching. Because I don't allow a woman to teach or to be in authority over a man. So we have male teachers. And it goes, Adam was created first, then Eve. That's before the fall. Well, the fall has changed everything. Well, it's made things worse. It's made the man's rule heavier and less biblical often. It's made the woman's point of submissiveness and that. But all of that's not here. Who was created first? Well, we read Genesis 2. The man was created first. Then God decided it was not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper. And I made the woman out of the man. So that's clear. Titus chapter 2. So 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus chapter 2. And we're going to pick up with the women. We'll be on the men next time. Older women, verse 3 of Titus 2. Likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossip, not enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good. Well, I just read that they weren't teaching. Well, we want to do the context. They do teach other women. They can teach children. That's consistent with Proverbs and other passages. So that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Then he'll go on to talk to the young men. This is for the women. Basically, again, primarily we're talking about married women. But here in the church, the older men are to be temperate. The older women are to be reverent in their behavior. 
not malicious gossips, not enslaved to wine, teaching what is good. And it goes on to tell what they're teaching. They may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure workers at home. We've got everything now geared and the church becomes more and more conformed to the world. And pretty soon, the church just doesn't really have a place. You know, many of the men that some of you like to read, I like to read Spurgeon, Alexander McLaren, and all from the 1800s. But now, it's been a number of years I read, in England, less than 5% of the people attended any church. And they estimated in the coming years it would be down below 2% of any church. But we're getting there. You know, I used to tell you, now move over, get more people in. Some people moved on to other Bible-believing churches, and that's fine. But some people have just sort of fallen out. What happens? Then, pretty soon, well, I'm not learning the Word of God the way I should learn it. And that goes, and pretty soon, husband and wife, children, everything begins to disintegrate. One more passage, First Peter, all the way toward the back, almost to the book of Revelation, is First Peter chapter 3. And we cover some of the same things. We're going to cover general submission at the end of chapter 2 of First Peter and slaves, as Paul will get to in chapter 6 of Ephesians. But right now, chapter 3, in the same way, you wives be submissive to your husbands. In the same way as what? Verse 13 of chapter 2, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Verse 16 of chapter 2, act as free men. Do not use your freemen as a covering for evil, but use it as slaves of God. Servants, be submissive to your masters. Again, on instructions there. And the example is Christ. So in the same way, Wives, be submissive to your own husbands. As slaves are submissive, as we are to be following the example to your own husbands, so that if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won by a word by the behavior of the wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. The role here is not determined. Well, my husband's not a believer, so these passages don't apply to me. They apply to you very directly. Well, I don't think my husband's a believer. Well, then by your chaste and respectful behavior, you may impact him. Well, then he wants me to sin. But, you know, I've only been here for 50 plus years. And I've had a lot of marriage couples. Really, the wife's issue doesn't come down to usually sin. Where it is clearly sin, the wife shouldn't do it. That's clear. Book of Acts chapter 5, the apostles are clear. Uh, I cannot disobey God. But most of the, well, I don't think it ought to be. I don't, I don't, I don't. It doesn't matter what you do or don't. It matters what God says. So maybe your husband's an unbeliever. That will make your life and your obedience to him more difficult. But 
Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart. Again, it doesn't mean you don't wear dresses or you can wear jewelry, but you want to be careful. That's not what your adornment is about. What I'm about, and this is where the wife must keep her focus, especially when she has an unbelieving husband, I must keep it on being a godly person. But I must be careful to be obedient to him. Otherwise, we went through this. I can do this. Both my parents are home with the Lord now. My mother was saved before my father. And we were saved when I was a young person. But I do remember certain things. And some of them, my dad said, you look like walking death. <laughs> and, uh, well, my mother said, well, I shouldn't wear lipstick. I shouldn't wear makeup. I should wear my hair in a bun. I should do all this because that's what the church tells me. Well, it wasn't what the scripture said. Now, when later my dad was saved and then my mother, they adjusted and got into a church where the word was taught, they could adjust. And my mother would have, yeah, I can respect your father and I respect the fact that he would like me to dress like my father could respect. But that takes time. So we want to be careful. The hidden person of the heart, verse 4, with the imperishable quality, here we go, of a gentle and quiet spirit. It's not making an issue all the time if you have an unbelieving husband. It's not. It's your gentle, your quiet spirit. There are certain things you can't do, certain things you must do because the scripture is clear on that. The book of Acts talks about that and chapter 5 in particular. But generally, yeah, if, if you want me to do that, yes, I'll do that. It's the gentle and quiet spirit, the hidden person of the heart. For in this way, verse 5 In former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham. I want you to pick up something here because when we get back to Ephesians, and I haven't forgotten it, some make a point. Well, the wife is told to be submissive to her husband. She's not told to obey him like the children and the slaves are. But they're really synonymous expressions. If you read certain commentators, they'll make note of that. Being submissive and obeying go together. And they're the two words that we have dealt with in Ephesians 5. The wives are to be submissive to their husbands. Children are to obey their parents. Slaves are to obey their masters. But here, she was being submissive to their own husband just as Sarah obeyed Abraham. How'd she show she was submissive? She did what he wanted. Now, again, that doesn't mean in sin. Well, he wants me to sin. I guess I go get drunk because he said you should get drunk. No, I can't get drunk. I go with you and I'll bring you home. I'll drive you home when you get drunk, but I won't get drunk. I mean, they want to be careful here because this becomes an excuse for the wife to say, well, I disagree. Well, you're put in the submissive position just as the slave is, just as the children are. You obey. Sarah obeyed Abram, calling him Lord. Whoa, that's going pretty far. Calling him Lord. In Genesis eighteen twelve, you can 
turn there as you have time. We don't need to go back there now. But she obeyed him, calling him Lord. She respected him. That's the example. And you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. And then there'll be instruction to the husband. We'll get to that. But right now we're focusing on the wife. It simplifies the wife's life. It's not my decision. My husband makes that decision for me. Now there are certain things that I can't do. That's a given. But I want to be very, very careful that the scripture specifically says I can't do that. I can't be immoral. Period. I'm sorry. I'd love to obey you, but I cannot be immoral. I cannot be drunk. If you insist I have a glass of wine with my meal, I'll have a glass, I'll sip it through the meal, but I, I cannot be drunk. There are certain things the Bible says are sin you can't do. But by and large, in the marriage, for the 50-some years that I've been here, that's not where the disagreements come. It's a disagreement come because the wife thinks this and the husband thinks that. Well, I want to be careful. All right. Come back to uh, Galatians, and then we're going to spend the next hour on Ephesians, on the wives. Galatians. Just before Ephesians, the book of Galatians, chapter 3, verse 28. Because this is where end up with people who don't like what Paul's written, don't like the rest of Scripture come. They say, there is neither Jew nor Greek, Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free man, neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ. And if you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. Therefore, now wives don't have to obey their husbands. No, that's not what he's talking about. There is an equality there. A wife is not to be treated like an animal. We'll get to that with the husband. And the husband has responsibility. But regardless of what kind of husband you have, here's your responsibility as a woman. And you need to be very, very careful not to take a verse of Scripture and say, well, there's neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. You're all one in Christ. Therefore, the male doesn't have to any longer be, if he's a slave, be a slave. He can do as he pleases. No, but somehow with the male-female, we say, well, see, that supersedes these other passages, so we'll have to find a way to make what Paul's saying in these other passages fit that. No, we allow that to say what it says. We are all one in Christ. There is a oneness, a uniqueness. You hope you have a husband that expresses that, but your role doesn't change as a wife. So come back to Ephesians chapter 5. Wives, and you pick up the participle of verse 21, being subject to one another in the fear of Christ, wives to your own husbands, as to the Lord. Uh, That's where the wife has to be careful. And we've had any number of husbands and wives who have left this church, and the wife has been honest. My wife's not happy. The husband tells me my wife's not happy. There's an occasion where the wife told me, I'm not happy. I won't come and hear you. But I'll go to another church. Well, they have to work that out. You're subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. That doesn't mean a wife can't say, I disagree here. May talk to her husband about it. But the ultimate decision is the husband's. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is also the head of the church. That goes back 
the chapter 1, verse 22. He put all things in subjection under his feet, Christ, and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness. Christ is sovereign. The wife recognizes and acknowledges and submits to the sovereignty of Christ when she submits to the husband that the Lord has given her. That's just the way it is. She submits to her husband as to the Lord. No, I'm submissive to the Lord, but I will not do what he tells me. Well, what's he telling you? And, you know, then it gets nebulous. Lord, I'm submitting to him and I'm allowing you to work it out. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is also the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. Now, the husband isn't the savior of the wife's body, but the point of connection here is the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, and he's the one. Now, the wife, the husband is there, and we'll get into this of the husband, to be the protector, the provider for the family. But as the church is subject to Christ, So also the wives ought to be to their own husbands, to their husbands, in most things. Not what your Bible says, is it? It's not what the Greek text of this says either. He says in everything. Anpati. Everything. All things. That simplifies the life unless there is a clear, definite, I use immorality, but that's become pretty broad anymore but an example there are certain things a wife cannot do she doesn't want to get drunk with wine she doesn't want to be an immoral person but by and large those aren't what the husband is requiring there's a provision for even divorce in certain cases but that's not what we've dealt with as a church not what I dealt with in the 50-some years I've been the pastor here. It ends up, well, I don't agree with him. Well, what about the scripture that says, well, I think this is an exception. We want to be careful. Verse 24 says, as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their own husbands and everything. Now, what do I have the right not to obey Christ in? Well, Nothing. He's the head of the church, period. Uh, Well, then the husband is the head of the wife in everything. Now we go back to 1 Peter chapter 3. There may be an unbelieving husband. That's going to be difficult. But a number of you have dealt with that, and some of you are still dealing with that. But the pattern is there. That's nice. The Lord cleans it up because I don't have to decide, do I have the husband? Is my husband doing the right thing? Is he now in certain things? Yeah, you may talk about it and that'll be nice. And you may have your input, but you do it with the other, you know, it's your decision. And I submit to that. That's where the wife is. So in a sense, her position is easy. Now, verse 25, we'll start with the husbands. And you all have to be back for that. We'll be checking attendance next week to make sure that every man is here. And I know you wives, you you can't make your husband come, but you can nudge him and say, well, we ought to go. And we'll focus on the husband. So let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for the riches of your word. It is a practical word. It is biblical. It is theological. It is true. 
And Lord, the application of that and the implementation of that into our lives individually results from our being willing to be filled with the Spirit. It's an ongoing thing. It's a growing thing. It's growing for wives, growing for women. And we'll see it's growing for men and husbands. Lord, we want to be biblical and handle our lives in a way that is conformed to what you have revealed for us because that is best and that what you have planned. So we commit ourselves to you in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Sound Words, a ministry of Indian Hills Community Church. Make sure to download our app from iTunes or Google Play for more messages like the one you just heard. If you would like to contact us, please email soundwords at ihcc.org or give us a call at 402-483-4541.